I want to begin formally this morning with a provocative quote from Pastor Russell Moore discussing the goal of raising children. The goal is not that our children will behave better. In fact, a well-behaved person is sometimes the closest to hell. Now, children, before you use this quote to say something like, well, mom, Pastor Paul says the goal of your parenting is not that I should behave better so I don't have to clean my room, let me explain. The Bible presents two categories or two types of people. There's the righteous and the unrighteous. The righteous are free of guilt and sin. The righteous are right with God. The righteous will go to heaven when they die. The unrighteous are not right with God, and as a result, will go to hell. Christians believe they are righteous. Why? What what makes a Christian righteous? This is a very important question because it gets at the root of what it means to be a Christian. We've talked before uh, about how some will identify two religious enemies of biblical Christianity. One of those enemies is irreligion or dismissing religion altogether affirming rejection of moral truth, affirming a pursuit of pleasure and passions, living by the motto, to each his own. This type of belief affirms to go to heaven. If heaven exists, we don't need to do anything to be righteous. Either God will accept and love me for who I am, regardless of what I do, or there is not a God that exists that places value on how we live. If one enemy is religion, the second is traditional religion. To understand this enemy, Pastor Timothy Keller has a definition that I find helpful. Traditional religion teaches that if we do good deeds and follow the moral rules in our external behavior, God will come into our hearts, bless us, and give us salvation. In other words, if I obey, God will love and accept me. Traditional religion affirms a person is righteous when practicing particular behaviors. Many in this room may hold on to this type of belief. Many in our culture certainly do. They believe a Christian is righteous because they are a well-behaved person. They perform right actions and the right practices, things like attending church, confessing sin, reading the Bible, serving the most vulnerable, praying, giving to others, and giving to the church. Why would believing, practicing particular behaviors be an enemy of biblical Christianity? Why might a well-behaved person be the closest to hell? For the past several weeks, we've been working our way through the Gospel of Mark. And up to this point, we've seen Jesus challenge many cultural assumptions of his time. Pastor Chris likes to say Jesus holds no punches. This morning, we encounter Jesus challenging a group of people 
who believe right behavior makes their heart righteous. That because of what they do, they earn God's favor. They are free of guilt. They deserve to go to heaven and their hearts are clean. Jesus will challenge such a belief. So our big idea this morning will be the practices of men do not make the heart of a man righteous. To expand on this big idea, we will explain characteristics of the Pharisees, the people who believe their practices make their hearts clean. We will see how their faith and practices destroys biblical community and makes them blind to their need for Christ. If you have your Bibles with you, open them up to the seventh chapter of Mark's Gospel. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along as we display passages on the screen. We will begin with verse 1. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. Now, if you, if you have your Bible open, you know that Mark provides a, an explanation, kind of a parenthetical explanation, describing some of the practices of the Pharisees in verses 3 and 4. We'll come back to that description in a moment, but I want to jump to verse 5. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? Mark tells us the Pharisees saw Jesus' disciples had not adopted a practice to wash hands before eating. Now, this wasn't a matter of physical cleanliness. They believed washing hands before eating was necessary to be clean spiritually. The Pharisees had a long checklist of behaviors used to determine whether or not someone was righteous. Things like what type of foods someone ate, who they associated with. Their genetic heritage. They needed to be Israelites. What someone did on the Sabbath. Did they wash their hands before eating? Many of you know, Monday through Friday, I have a job working in healthcare. So we, in that job, we periodically participate in surveys that examine our practices. The surveys will include a checklist of things like Do the therapists and clinicians who work with us, do they document medical necessity? Are the clients that we serve, are they aware of their rights as patients? Do we as an organization, do we have policies and procedures that provide proper oversight of our practice? Interestingly enough, do our clinicians properly wash their hands? Of course, the surveyors who are there, who are doing this survey, they're not assessing if our clinicians are clean spiritually. They're assessing competence and ability to effectively care for patients. Now, anyone who's been through a survey like this, you know the surveyor, the the person doing the survey, they're focusing on that checklist. They aren't really focused on caring about you or the, the clients. They are consumed with the checklist. The Pharisees were consumed with a checklist of actions or behaviors indicating if someone was righteous. This was their primary filter for their encounters with others. They did not see individuals as people, but rather objects in relation to the checklist and finding fault 
in whether or not they were following that checklist. So this is characteristic number one of individuals who believe practices make people clean. Focusing on finding fault in others. The disciples of Jesus, they're not washing their hands. So like a good surveyor, the Pharisees ask a question. Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? Now this question, it's not a question seeking information so much, but to point out a fault. Or in survey language, they're pointing out a deficiency. To give you a a trivial example of this type of question, I really like my coffee dark, and I like it black. Pouring creamer or sugar in a cup of coffee is a waste. So if I come upon you pouring creamer or sugar in your coffee, it doesn't meet my checklist of right behavior. So I ask, why are you doing that? Now this could signal genuine interest in, to, to, to some as to why you make that choice. But the question I ask is, why are you doing that? I'm not interested in why you pour that garbage into your coffee. I'm asking the question so you know I found a fault or a deficiency. When focused on a checklist of behaviors as a standard of righteousness, you will find fault in others. You will see their deficiencies. What are some of the items on your checklist of righteousness? How do you see people as objects in relation to a checklist? What are your, some of your favorite issues to mark a person deficient. How often they are engaging spiritual disciplines like reading scripture, praying, serving. Is it looking at the lack of self-control in someone's habits and how they spend their money or how they spend their time? Is it seeing parents and how they don't engage in family devotions or how they don't value spending time with their kids like you value spending time with your kids? How do you view people as objects in relation to a checklist of righteousness? When you filter your interactions with others as objects in relation to a checklist, it can be very unhelpful. And it can destroy community. Like the Pharisees viewed Jesus' disciples, you may view people not meeting the checklist as dirty and unclean. You may talk negatively, complaining, why would they do that? You may talk poorly about them to others. You may complain about them internally. You view them less as people and more as failures in relation to the checklist. Like a surveyor, you're less interested in them as a person, and you're more interested in them meeting that checklist. Now, now a good question to ask about this checklist, what is it it generated from? Where does it come from? It may be generated from Scripture, but more often, like the Pharisees, it is generated from sources of, outside of scripture. Let's return to the parenthetical expression, excuse me, parenthetical explanation in verse 3 that we skipped over earlier. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. 
And when they come to the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. So Mark uses this phrase, tradition, multiple times in Mark chapter 7 to describe the practices of the Pharisees. He's doing this to highlight the reality they were using something other than sacred scripture to generate a checklist of practices to determine if someone was righteous or not. Let me give you an example. So the biblical law taught to rest on the Sabbath. So to help individuals rest... The tradition of the elders came up around the law to provide a practice to help follow what Scripture was teaching. So so the tradition of the elders taught, one, that you shouldn't look into a mirror on Sunday. You shouldn't look into a mirror because if you did, you might find a gray hair. You might want to pluck it out, and so you'd end up working on the Sabbath. So the, the Pharisees' checklist included something like, you can't look in a mirror into a mirror on Sunday. Now, th- this might seem silly to us, but please note, this practice in and of itself is not a bad thing. It, it would not be evil in and of itself. It might even be good for some of us to say, I'm not going to look in mirrors on Sunday. The problem is, when we make this practice into a burden, it's fraudulent. This is characteristic number two of people who believe practices make them clean. The formation of fraudulent burdens. The formation of fraudulent burdens occur when we confuse matters of growing in maturity or matters of personal conviction or even personal preference and we make them into issues of absolute morality. Telling people it is wise to not look in mirrors on Sunday, that may not be a bad thing, but forbidding them to do so is a fraudulent burden. Let me give you a more contemporary example. So, Scripture teaches parents how to raise children. Deuteronomy 6-7 says, You shall teach them, and, and them is referring to the commands of God, you shall teach them to your children. And you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. I could keep reading, but you're going to have to come to the parenting seminar to hear the rest of that lesson. The point. Scripture teaches parents some things about how to raise kids. Now, one of the books I've been reading to help me grow as a parent is by a man named Andy Crouch called The TechWise Family. In that book, Crouch upholds practices like not using technology when driving in the car. Car time is conversation time. Or practice putting your devices to sleep at night, plugging them in at a centralized location rather than going to bed with them. There can be a great deal of wisdom in adopting these types of practices to support people seeking to live out God's instruction in Deuteronomy 6. But we can take a wise practice and form it into a fraudulent burden. If we equate material in the TechWise family with commands found in Scripture, this is how we form fraudulent burdens. So we're in a a season of Lent. I've mentioned I was raised in the Roman Catholic Church. Every Lent, 
many would not eat meat on Fridays. This is not necessarily a bad practice. But when it is made a mandatory burden, it is fraudulent. In the evangelical church, many equate saying something, something called the sinner's prayer to, to be a gateway into the Christian faith. You will not find the sinner's prayer in Scripture, but the sinner's prayer, it's not necessarily a bad thing, but when it is equated with sacred Scripture, when it's made mandatory, it is fraudulent. We need to be careful in a church like ours that values practices and methods. We can very much develop personal convictions, practices related to maturity, even personal preferences, and we can form them into fraudulent burdens. Maybe we develop convictions about the best method to read and understand Scripture, or the best translation to use when we're reading Scripture. Or maybe we develop a conviction about how to pray, or particular songs that we shouldn't sing or should sing, or convictions about having nightly family devotions. Church, we need to be cautious that we are not elevating convictions formed outside of Scripture into fraudulent burdens. When forming a fraudulent burden, we can take a practice outside of Scripture and we can elevate it to the level of absolute authority. So in addition to saying, Why would they do that? Another internal expression we use is someone is righteous if, and what follows the if is not found in Scripture. Like the Pharisees, we take sources outside of Scripture to generate a checklist of items that determine whether or not someone is or is not righteous. How did Jesus respond to the Pharisees? Well, we read in Mark chapter 7, and he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. The third characteristic associated with people who believe practices make them righteous is functioning with a false facade. Jesus says these people are hypocrites. The the Greek word for hypocrite actually means wearing a mask or putting on a costume. It is displaying a false front. These people honor me with their lips, but in reality their hearts are far from me. There is a duplicitousness to how they live. They can talk good talk, but they do not back up that talk with how they live. As such, their worship is shallow. Jesus quotes the prophet Isaiah, In vain do they worship me. The hearts of the Pharisees, they were pointed pointed to proving their worth. Their ability to check things on a checklist. Their hearts were not pointed to the heart and character of God. To prove his point, Jesus provides an example. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God 
in order to establish your own tradition. There's that word tradition again, referring to sources outside of Scripture. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is korban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or his mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. So the Old Testament had laid down a principle that individuals were to take care of older members of the family as they aged and were less productive. This was a a way to care for some of the most vulnerable in society. Korban was a tradition of the elders. Individuals could essentially dedicate resources to the Lord as a practice of deferred giving. They could dedicate a portion of their financial and material wealth to the Lord, and as such, they could prohibit others from using it while they lived, because, well, it was dedicated to the Lord. So Corban provided this opportunity for people to adhere to the tradition of the elders while they could avoid caring for older parents. As such, it left some of the most vulnerable in society in a state of desperation. Jesus is using this example. He's showing how the Pharisees, they were not looking to practices to serve God, but they were manipulating practices to serve self. How do we manipulate practices to serve self? Or how do we hide behind words to present a false facade? Well, some speak in educated theological language. They can talk about the four spiritual laws or the tenets of complementarianism. They can share the gospel by way of something called the Romans Road. They can talk about the sinfulness of man, the sovereignty of God. They can use phrases like salvation, justification, and sanctification. During gospel community gatherings, they can talk about sin in theological terms. They may be able to even talk about the sin of others. But they cannot talk about their own specific sins. They distract and hide behind their words to present a false facade. Others may manipulate biblical principles. Principles perhaps like prayer and community, as opportunities to justify something like gossip. You you know there are others who know what's going on in someone else's story in our church or in our gospel community. So, So you know you don't want to gossip, but you do ask probing questions. You you want to know. And so you use principles like, well I just want to be able to pray for them. You're looking for a loophole. Your desire has little to do with God or even his church. You want to know because it feels good to know. And you feel left out when you don't know. We can manipulate the law of God or the practices of the church to serve self rather than to serve him. This is functioning with a false facade. How we often use the law to serve self, it gets us to the fourth characteristic 
of the person who believes practices will make them righteous. And that characteristic is they have fractured loves. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Jesus says a man or woman is not made righteous because of their practices. The way you eat food, it does not make you clean. The way you practice family devotions, it does not cleanse you. The manner in which you do or do not show up to church or your gospel community, it does not cleanse you. The problem is not our practices. On the one hand, we could say the Pharisees had a high view of sin. They upheld belief in practices and their need to be clean. But on the other hand, we could say they had a low view of how sinful they were. They believed their performance with practices would make them righteous. They believed they could save themselves because of how they lived. When we believe our practices make us righteous, we express a fundamental misunderstanding. Man isn't sinful because of outward actions and behavior. Man is sinful because his heart is set on evil things. He is sinful at his very core. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? Since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled, thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Jesus lists several actions. Things like theft and adultery. And then he moves from actions to attitudes. Things like deceit, envy. And if that doesn't cover you or get you invited into what he's saying, he also includes things like pride and foolishness. The actions and attitudes of a person, they reveal the evil found in that person's heart. Jesus broadens the implications of his conversation with the Pharisees. It is not only they who are dirty and need to be purified. Everyone does. Why is traditional religion an enemy of biblical Christianity? One of the, one of the best illustrations I've heard of this, it, it might be a little bit cheesy. I mean, it did come from my youth ministry days. But I do find it to be very helpful. Okay, Imagine you have a burnt cake. What do you do with a burnt cake? Well, you could go out and you could get some frosting and some decorations. And you could make that cake look really good. 
So we could take that burnt cake, we, we could cover it with frosting and decorations, and we could, we could use that cake to celebrate it. And if we were to eat that cake, what would we all do? Right? It'll, it'll be a pretty disgusting thing to eat, even though it looks really nice on the exterior. The person seeking, to pra- seeking practices to make them righteous, this is what they're trying to do. You don't address the core problem. The person with the burnt cake, they need a new cake. The person with a defiled heart, they need a new heart. Here is what fractured love loves mean. The practices generated from our heart, they cannot make us righteous because our hearts are defiled. Our hearts are evil. So here's the question. If our hearts are dirty, if we need to be righteous with God, what makes us righteous? What makes us clean? What does it mean to be a Christian? We did not read all of chapter 7 this morning. I believe Pastor Chris is set to touch on the latter part next week. And I don't want to steal his thunder But there's a contrast of disposition in this chapter we need to mention. After Jesus interacts with the Pharisees, the group that meets the checklist or tries to meet the checklist, Jesus encounters a woman who certainly does not. She will plead with Jesus for mercy to heal her son. And unlike the Pharisees, her hands are dirty. She doesn't eat the right foods. She doesn't wash her pots or her dishes or clean her mats. Unlike the Pharisees, she doesn't have the cultural background to make her deserving of a relationship with Jesus. As you read this interaction, it may seem offensive as Jesus draws out how she understands how desperate she really is. She has no personal practices, no cultural background, no standing among God's people to make her deserving before Christ. She's got nothing. And yet, Christ heals her son. She is the one who receives his grace and his mercy, not the one trusting in the checklist. Part of what God does in being compassionate toward us is make clear just how desperate we really are. Many of us, we don't want compassion like this. We want to take pride in our practices. We want to prove why we are worthy of God's mercy and grace. We don't want to be desperate. We don't want to acknowledge that we have nothing like this woman that make us 